Welcome to Live Free, Ride Free, where we talk to people who have lived self-actualized lives on their own terms and find out how they got there, what they do, how we can get there, what we can learn from them, how to live our best lives, find our own definition of success, and most importantly, find joy. I'm your host, Rupert Isaacson, New York Times best-selling author of The Horse Boy, founder of New Trails Learning Systems and LongRideHome.com. You can find details of all our programs and shows on RupertIsaacson.com. Welcome back to Live Free, Ride Free, where we talk to people who are living and have lived and still are living and will keep living self-actualized lives. What does that mean? Lives where they are living on their own terms, through their own interests, through their imaginations, what we would really call the definition of success. It has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with fame. Some of the people that we are interviewing are public figures. Some of them are people you've never heard of. Some of them are people who are at home looking after elderly parents. Some of them are people who are changing the world very publicly in different ways. It doesn't matter how you do it. What matters is, are you living on your own terms or do you want to and of course would you like to be mentored because this is always helpful so i've got a great mentor on um this week this is diana elbaum she's amazing she's an independent film producer she's based in belgium but she works all over the world she's done all sorts of things and those of you who've always thought oh yeah i'd quite like to make a movie you know i'd quite like to be a, a independent you know film person I, I can make a documentary well she's the person who has sort of done that and has done that in a, a very quiet but very effective way she wouldn't be most producers are people you haven't heard of you hear about directors you hear about actors but you don't hear about producers and you don't hear about screenwriters but they are the people who actually get films done and made and the reason why you don't hear about them is because that's how they like it they want to be the people behind the scenes they want to be what you call in french the eminence grise which was the the name for the cardinal richelieu who was the power behind the throne of louis the 13th they want the director and the actors to be out front meanwhile they they are always not only brewing up the witch's potion of the uh, film that you're seeing now, but they're usually working on about 10 different ones. And um, they often uh, are working on things that you don't even know that they were working on. Um, uh, music producers are like this too. Um, so you, if you really read the sleeve notes of an album, you might say, oh my gosh, this person pops up here and here and here and here and here across all these different genres. It's a little bit the same. And Diana is one of these people. So. We're going to ask her how it's done. We're going to ask her how she got there. But more than that, we're going to ask her why this work is is so fulfilling and what can we learn from it? So, Diana, thank you so much for coming on. Who are you? Oh, thanks, Rupert. And if I can live up to what you just said. So, yeah, I'm Diana. I'm based in Belgium, born in Belgium, lived in the US for a long time, lived in the Middle East for a long time. I think from the get-go, I'm a person who's always been really fascinated by storytelling. And I can remember for a long, long time when I was a teenage and uh, I was totally a bookworm. And by the chance by the chance of meeting a great teacher in high school, 
she opened up the door to an amazing um, storytelling world, starting with, believe it or not, Dutch literature, and then moving on to American literature with the like of Faulkner, who then led me on to the magic realism of South American literature. And I think it opened in me as a teenager a vision of a world so much bigger than I thought it was. And also, it also opened capacity of touch me emotionally. I was quite lonely. I was a very, not reserved because I'm not, but I was a loner and I'm still am. But those spaces that a book allows you, and then after that, of course, that films allows you, for me, I think it was always a trigger into what's so amazing about the connection we have with stories and how much it's needed for connecting for a stranger in an airport, in a train, a friend, or, and I think that was my connection. And the first start and who I am really started, I mean, there is a lot of other things about me, but I think regarding what I am today, I think as far as I can remember where those, this curiosity, it triggered in me into the others. So literature was really my, the door that opened my life. And, and then I went on to study literature, South American literature, more precisely, and then, of course, when I came out of school was the question, so what do I do now? And then that's yet another story, but which I will tell. But I think it also triggers something even deeper than just reach out to emotion and the capacity to travel within somebody's writing. It was also a huge curiosity I didn't have. I didn't know I have. I had. I still have. So that's the second element about me. I'm extremely curious and very versatile. I'm absolutely not one street of, I like only this or that. Every, everything that I read or see or people that I meet immediately trigger in me zillion of questions. It's quite unbearable, actually, but that's the way it is. So, and then uh, when I was thinking about what I was going to do to to make money after university, it just so happened that the advantage of going into South American literature is that I came out at 24 from university with a, a baggage in languages, you know, Spanish. And of course, my native language is French. I studied in the U.S., so English was an asset. And I also speak from home. I speak Hebrew and there were other languages spoken around me. And I think the uh, capacity of speaking those languages is also something that really very, very early on told me that there was no border. So I could go wherever I wanted. So after leaving New York, I went to Israel. And of course, there's very little work in South American literature in Israel. But then by the chance encounter of some friends in the bar, somebody told me, oh, you speak all those languages. You know, there's this film uh, that's coming and, you know, they need kind of people who speak languages, French production, and they are looking for a production assistant. I had no idea what film was. 
I had no idea what it was all about, but I knew there was a check at the end of the day. So, you know, it's better than a lot of other jobs. So I went and I discovered a world that I literally fell in love with, which is the set. And the set had this energy of a whole unit working towards a vision. I don't have exactly the same feeling about it today, but at the time was this collective effort to create something and something that is not what I read because it became a film. And I found that energy totally incredible. And from there on, I was hooked. So I've been hooked now for more years than I can count. And I slowly started to move into bigger production because that was an era in Israel between around the end of the Lebanese war in the 80s where the weirdly Deloitte insurance was insurance production coming to Israel, which is stopped afterwards. But that mean all the American production came. So back to back, I did like 10 production. And of course, there were crews coming from all over the world coming to shoot, whether they were the stuntmen, horse stuntmen from Spain or the American actors or French crews or name it. And of the languages was always what allowed me to keep on working in the job. I don't think I was really good, but at least I spoke languages that a lot of people didn't. So it really uh, triggered more work for me and uh, more curiosity about what is it to put a film together. But of course, at that time was only, I was, you know, a little mouse on the set. So, you know, I started from being the, the person that was distributing water because that was something that we needed to do for the insurance and make sure that people wouldn't go dehydrated. But that allowed me to go from department to department and actually speak with the people and learn what they were doing. I was never interested in anything else than production, I have to say, though, you know, the art was interesting, wardrobe was interesting, the DP camera, all the camera was interesting, but it feels like so much out of my reach. And, and then arrived 88. And 88 was the first intifada in Israel. There was no more work. The situation politically was unbearable for me. And I had just... And what arrived in Israel in 88? Because a lot of listeners will not know. Tell us about it. So that. in Israel in 88 started the first uprising of the Palestinian against the Israeli authorities and the occupation. And everything shut down. It was almost war zone though it wasn't really, but for the insurance, it was enough not to insure any more films. Hence, the it was December, I think November or December 88, everything shut down. And so I had no more work. But besides having no more work, I think I've always been linked politically and, and on a very wide, um, when I say politically, on a very wide sense of it, one of the reasons why I left the U.S., I could have stayed after my study was because it was Grenada stories. It was Reagan. There was Reagan, then president. And those and and, you know, there were so many social injustices that I can't stand. And I think that's probably another factor of the films that I've done afterwards as a producer. The notion of the, I know it sounds maybe a little tacky, the notion, notion of injustice, maybe there's a way to repair it if I can, which, you know, on a very small scale. But those, those you know, when you're in this, those formative years of your 20 and you try to define who you are, I know that those were the triggers also for me to move from one place to the other. So I moved from the US, yes, because 
I could, again, as I said, I could have stayed, but the political situation was so awful. And also living in New York at the time where the homeless were just increasingly, how shall I say that? I mean, if we really were to go back, I'm sorry, I'm going to backtrack a little bit on that. When I lived in the US, I lived in New York, the time Reagan arrived, he closed all the asylums. And so a lot of, a lot of people found themselves in the streets. And it was at the same time, the crazy years of the Wolf of Wall Street and the start of uh, Wall Street, but at the same time, really on the street, it was, it was awful. It was a total despair. It was unbearable because also I felt a lack of knowing what to do about it. So for those years I left, I didn't want, I was an American. I couldn't do anything more than that. So I left and then I arrived in Israel. And then in 88, starting Tifada, there's nothing I could do about it. And I decided to leave. So it wasn't only because I had no more work because at the end of the day, you can always find work, but it was some, this, the situation was just, I couldn't figure out what to do within that realm. I couldn't, I just couldn't, I didn't know. So I, and I wasn't active. I wasn't an active member of any kind of party. I'm still not, but the right and wrong I had decided I couldn't live by is really what dictated my leaving. And my idea was then to go back, then it was not Reagan anymore, to go back to the US, but then I stopped in Belgium to say hi to my friends. I had left since high school and I got stuck here. And actually it's okay place because yeah, you don't have to take any political stand here. It's a weird place, Belgium. It's an amazing place for those who don't know. But I was I was immediately hired because then at that time, just pure sheer luck in 88, 89 started advertising on television here. There wasn't that before. There was massive work and then nobody had work in the industry. It was very tiny, tiny industry or a few films a year and that's it. And here I arrive and I have all those connections and I'm like, yeah, I've done this. And I've, you know, kind of also being very not humble about what I had done, but also everybody considered me as like, oh, she knows how to do it. And it was really a weird time because I was doing all those huge advertising. I was, there were no women around me. I had no role figure in that business. And I did incredible advertising all over the world from Japan to Australia, to back to the US, to South Africa. And it was the time of like endless bounty in the industry, in the advertising world. Till a few years later, where my kind of sense of, I don't know if you call it sense of justice, but at least sense of, of, reality or whatever hit me again where I was it's kind of a funny story I was in a pre-production meeting for Frozen Peas that was a local shoot Frozen Peas and and I remember the the client you know those pre-productions when we decide how it's going to be the look there is a director and the client and the agencies and the producers around the table to just really go down in detail how the commercial is going to look like and you know, the music that's going to be with it. And I remember spending four hours in that meeting where half of the time to decide the exact color of the actress or the model that needed to in compare to the piece. And I totally broke down and I left. At that point, I had done a lot of commercial. I was really high-end commercial producer, or I wasn't the producer, but I was production manager. 
And I knew they had really little other choice on the market but me. And I just looked at all of them. I said, do you know how many children die from hunger while we're deciding the call of the dress? Because I had it. I had it. And I really hope at that time they would throw me out and say, never come back again. And, you know, here, but they kept on hiring me. And I had to decide in the, that's early 90s that if I didn't make a change in my life, then I would never get out of it. So then I started the other parts of the story. But I have to say that to go back to a point you made earlier about how do you take those decisions of being able to throw tons of money away because it doesn't feel right. It takes a guts, but I never, I think it, it doesn't, it, it takes a specific kind of people that are not afraid of what tomorrow will bring. And uh, I've never been afraid of that. I think it's partly educational. And I think it's partly com being completely loony and crazy because I was never afraid not to know if I could pay my rent. I was never afraid not to know. And I had those really hard moments, huh? not to think that I didn't have them. But it wasn't, that was not going to be ever that I remember some kind of break to what I wanted to do. And I yet didn't know what I wanted to do. But I know and I remember, and I think it's still today. And I think it's not only it's still today, I think it also costs me money to have this kind of attitude of saying, nobody's going to tell me what I'm going to do tomorrow. And uh, so there is a toll for the people living around you. Huh? But at the same time, I can today, 30 years later, or a little more than 30 years later, I can say, you know, every day I wake up, Every day I, I'm saying to myself, I'm going to change job. I can't. Uh, and every day I'm happy. So, yeah. you know, the counterbalance of that is that. And uh, so when I threw out the frozen peas and um, I had to decide what to do, they kept on calling me. So I did a few more commercial. But then I went back to literature. Literally, that's what I did. My first refuge when I was a teenager came back another refuge when I was now, how old was it? I was like late 20s, early 30s. And uh, I say, well, I don't really know what I want to do. I want to stay in the environment of making storytelling, which of course, even advertising is sometimes storytelling. And But I want to do bigger. I want to change the world. I want to save the world. I had all those like really beautiful dreams. And I went back to literature and I optioned a book, which was a Swedish book by a Swedish author called Tony Lindgren. And I said, this is for me. This is the book that I need. Get the rights, find a director. And then I was stuck and I was like, how do I do now? Because I don't really know how to do a feature, right? I just know how to do commercials. And so I got training. And I went to a training program that still exists today in the film world for professional called European Audiovisual Entrepreneur. I'm training there now for the past 15 years, but uh, it really opened my eyes to the fact that I knew nothing. So the next skill you need to learn is to make it till you believe it. And some other would say fake it till it's happening, but I really made it and I start to believe in it. That film was never made, but it was a great learning curve because then you realize that the other things you need to do is get out of your shell. 
And getting out of your shell is actually starting to go on market and starting to meet people and starting to talk people and not only thinking that you're going to do a story, but maybe somebody else has a great story that they want to tell and and get to know people and then see how it works. So those years were the difficult one because I wasn't making any money, but I was free as a bird and I traveled senselessly, but I met a lot of people. And of course, 30 years later, those same people are the people that I'm still working with. A lot of them are still people that I'm working with because the revolution then wasn't so fast in terms of turnover of, you know, the people in the position of uh, financing and all that. It was just lower, slower mode that today. Today you speak to one person, you're not sure they're going to be around for six months. So, but then we were all starting. I'm speaking mainly European now. Huh? I'm not, I totally abandoned the idea of, there was, a half a second where I thought, well, maybe I'll go to Los Angeles and it's going to be easier. I abandoned that very, very fast. I really liked the European freedom, actually, and the fact that it wasn't entirely driven by a market. Mm. So it's and that that allowed me to really dream, actually. And then came 1994 and was my first can. And Cannes Film a, Festival. Cannes Film Festival, yeah. And, and you, you, had, you, were, you had a film you had made? No, nothing. I came there. Be, yeah, no, I didn't have a film. I still was trying to figure out how to make it. Mm-hmm. But I had a dear friend in Israel who was a distributor, and she called me and she said, you know, you should come to Cannes. I'll introduce you to all those people. You can sleep in my room, as maybe your listener don't know, but Cannes is the most expensive place to go during the film festival. I would not advise because it is extremely expensive. Absolutely. So, you know, having the invitation, I say, okay, I need only to pay for my train. That's going to be fun, you know. And, and so I did, full of hopes. And I think after maybe six hours there, I was like crying in the bathroom of the most prestigious, you know, hotel in the world, like the Majestic, because I couldn't figure out what people were doing. <laughs> and unfortunately, this friend was a trigger for something else because she saw me like, literally I was drinking and crying. That's basically because, you know, I went to all those parties, all the drinks were free. I didn't know that many people, though I had met people, but not yet to the massive amount of people that are in Cannes. And I was like, well, we all trying to do the same thing, sell our little stories and all that. I'm never going to make it. That was really a done moment for me, but I was happily drinking for free and I was happily, you know, crying in really beautiful bathrooms. But anyway, and she took me and then she saw me really desperate on day two and she took me by the hand and the advantage of speaking Hebrew is not that a lot of people do speak Hebrew. So she be, literally in the majestic took me from table to table where all the executive Americans and Europeans were like doing deals, you know, this like, like really it's, it's almost a cliche, right? Mainly men, of course. And she was so she took me from table to table and she told me, you know, the only thing everybody does here is sell dreams. You can sell dreams as well. And what she meant by that is two way things, two way, two way to look at it. We do sell dream because what we do is we have a written document and we're making into films. It's prototype. So prototype is deals is a dream in itself. And what's not a prototype is a remake. Every film is a prototype because it starts on paper 
if it's got the chance to find the financing it needs, then it becomes a film. So, you know. And at this first can, were you, did you have a story you were trying to get made or you were still- Yeah, it was the same story. Where am I in this? Yeah, it was the same story. And I would receive answers from sales agents. It was the the Swedish story. Yeah, the Swedish story. And it was like, you know, yeah, how many films have you made? Well, I've made only advertising. Who's your director? Oh, he's a first time director. He did a really successful short, which wasn't true. And who are your actors? Well, we're casting. And of course, I was like name dropping like crazy. And people would look at me and say, first film director, first film for the producer. No way we're going to finance that. What was the book, by the way, that you were trying to get made? It's called, oh, good question. Tony Lindgren. I have to go on Google. It's, oh my God, Rupert. I just forgot. And I love the book. But... What was it about the the book that grabbed you? Uh, it was something about a fake... It was something about a fake painter and a young singer and how her family, he was totally in love, like teens, he was totally in love with her and always wanted to impress, but her family decided she was going to be the next big thing in music. And so he was never considered as a the real pretender for her, for her love. Tell and me, so, tell me the name of the author again. I'm going to Tony Lindgren. Lindgren. Tony Lindgren. I think it was called in French, L'Eloge de la Vérité. L'Eloge de la Vérité. But I can't, I can Google it, but I can't. De la Vérité. Yeah. Okay, I'm just going <laughs> to. It looks like there aren't many great matches for your search. <laughs> oh my God. See? Tony, Tony That's the story of my life. Did you say Tony Lindgren? Thorny. It's T-O-R-J-N-Y. Oh, oh, that would be why. T, sorry. Let, let... T-O-R. T-O-R. Yeah. J-N-Y. J-N-Y. Tony. Yeah, that's not a name that an English speaker. Lindgren. L-I-N-D-J-R-E-N. Lindgren. He passed a few years ago. J-R-E-N. Not G R E N. Oh, J R E N. J R E N. Well, I oh, always Swedish writer. Yeah, I've got him. Tony okay. Lindgren, and you say that his. L'éloge la vérité. I can't remember t- the title in English. Okay, I'm seeing the way of a serpent, pulsan sweetness, makalskunet. Maybe something with Paula. Betsheba. Betsheba. No. Um, he's a great writer, by the way. Well, thanks for turning me on to him. I'll, uh, how did you How did you discover him out of interest? No, you can kill me. I will never remember. I can't mm. remember. Okay. It's one of those things. I love secondhand bookstores, so I think I just picked it up. Maybe I love the cover. I don't know. You know, why yeah, do you yeah, pick up yeah. another, another one? Maybe it's Paula ou l'éloge la vérité. Is anything on Paula? Paula. Okay, I think I did see that. Hold on. Hold on. Pulsan, Pulsan. I don't know, but I can find it. Hold on. Pula ou l'éloge vérité. Pula ou It was about... <laughs> it's funny. 
it was about the truth and the fake. So I guess I'm a precursor of what we live today. So it's Paula Oliloja Verité. That's the name in French. Yeah, I guess it's a cover now that I see the cover. But how can I find in English? Because my Google is in French. Parametre, maybe in English. Let's do English, see what it brings us. Paula. There's a cover with a woman in dark glasses. That's the French cover. Okay. Was it set in modern times? Well, it was set then, yeah. Paul uh, Elan, Ole Loge it's a book written in 1993, actually. Hmm. Oh, yeah, I know. I know how I get on that. There was this then upcoming uh, editor called Actor Suit, who was really going into a different literature than usual. And I really loved that one. So I think I read. Uh, but what is the, I, I don't even know the, I don't know how I can find the original title. And he's a wonderful writer. Well, I shall, I shall look up. Okay, so you, you, you were, try, you were still trying to get this book made. Yeah, I was, and I was getting all those. Yeah. yeah, and I was getting all those like either macho backlash or whatever. I was getting those uh, kind of signals, and so after crying my heart out that I will never make it for like two or three days, I got a lucky break when I came back home, whereby the producer of. Chantal Ackerman, who's an amazing Belgian uh, director who did Jean Dillman, who's uh, been voted as one of the best film in the last, I don't know, 50 years or something like that, Late, uh, very, like a few months ago, called me and she said, well, Chantal is doing this film who's the most commercial film she's going to do with Juliette Binoche and William Hurt. And it's between Paris and New York. And we've heard about you and uh, we are looking for somebody to produce a film because we will not do it. And it was then a co-production with France, with Balenciaga. And that was my break. And what was the name of the film? It was called A Couch in New York. A Couch in New York. Okay. And that was your first, the first film that you produced? That was yes. your break. Yes, that was my really lucky break. William Hurt and Juliet. Sounds great. Yeah. And it was a it was a huge, huge lesson of understanding the craziness of the job as a producer. Um, because it was main really, you know, already Juliette Binoche was very known. Of course, William Hurt was very known. Chantal is a very specific, deep art house, a world of her own, but the film was financed by very commercial companies. And that already, I understood there was red flag all over the project because on one hand, it was a rom-com between Paris and New York. You can't go better than that uh, with those actors. And on the other hand, it was a very author film. And but regardless of I love the film. And also it 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 allowed me to what to witness something else I had never witnessed. Is when the film came out, it didn't really do well, except in Belgium. And 
it was my first film. So I was literally buying tickets for every screening, you know, in Brussels, just to see how the, uh, the audience would react. Mm -hmm. And then when I saw the audience coming out with kind of a smile on their face, I was like, how magical is that? Mm. You're actually delivering to the world something that people will take time to come and see, sit down two hours in a black, you know, in a theater, black place, and pay for it and come out with a smile or a tear afterwards or an emotion. And that totally made sense all of a sudden about what my job could be. And it allowed me really to understand, thanks to that film, not only the, what was happening inside a film production or rather inside of, yeah, trying to put together a film and then working this kind of really crazy high-end Parisians, German, at the same time, preserving Chantal, whom I became very, I knew her before, but I became much closer to her, a real author and a voice of an author against this pressure of the market. And on the other hand, seeing an audience, seeing people deliberately choosing to go and buy a ticket and then being really happy about it. I think I that's... I'm just going to tell the listeners too. I'm, I'm just looking. I just, I just wikied both Paula, which is the name of the movie that didn't get made by Tony Lundgren. Yes, indeed. Uh, an aging painter versus a up and coming young diva, which sounds brilliant. And then this one that you made your first big break, a couch in New York where there's anonymous, an anonymous apartment swap and Juliette Binoche, who's a dancer swaps with William Hurt who's a psychoanalyst and she starts rather illegally seeing his patients who show up and a succession of her lovers start showing up in in her apartment and in the course of this of course they fall out of love and then in love it looks great interestingly though as mainstream movies go it's on the art house side yes. so now here you are you've sort of got a foot in Hollywood with a movie like this well not really what, well exactly time. you would think you have because it's 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 an American these are this is a big American actor there would have been presumably some American financing and no on this one there was French mainly financing okay and, uh, and yeah it's uh, I think Chantal really um People were drawn, people are drawn to big name directors or very interesting directors. And of course, both of them had done amazing work before with great directors and having a European director, having this kind of like um, take on rom-com and New York and Paris was uh, very infatuating. We, we actually shot in Germany in Babelsberg studio. So that was another thing of being in a mythic studio like Babelsberg. Uh, for those who don't know, we have a few mythic um, studios in the world, Cinecitta in Rome, Babelsberg and Barandov in uh, Babelsberg in Berlin and Barandov in Hungary, where like the history of cinema was made. So it was also for me being still the younger kid on the block around was like, ooh, all those actors. Yeah, so I thought I was like, you know, I thought I, I thought I had made it then, but <laughs> the road was still long to go after that one. Before we embark on that road, why is Babelsberg um, such a legendary place? For those of us not in the movie industry, a lot of us would be, be the first time we've heard that name. Why was um, film history made there? Because all those studios were built really at the uh, golden age of cinema. 
I don't exactly know if Babelsberg was, I think Babelsberg was even be, built before the war. So we're talking about studios that are today almost 100 years old, where at the time, I don't think there were so many films made on location, on relocation. A lot yeah. of stuff was done in studios. So they've seen right. the like of uh, the Fellinis and, and, and at least I can't really name, I don't know if, I, I'm not a big historian in film, but... The thing is that there is something in those walls that ooze greatness. Like Pinewood in the UK, for example. Pinewood in the UK. Yeah, yeah. So there's there is not that many. I'm not even talking about the American lots, but I'm talking about European studios. And they, they and you see the people work there and you see the, the art department. You have all the profession of film business there and of filmmaking there which is still very, I mean, up until the digital era was extremely traditional and extremely artisanal. And you have those people who have those amazing qualities of building and creating spaces in the Koch in New York, the whole Paris apartment was made there. Okay, and so was it not shot in New, New York, York at all? Was it only- Yeah, we did. We shot the stu- We shot the apartment, the New York apartment in New York, but the Paris one was shot in because it was a small space. The thing also, you just have to imagine she was a dancer, had no money. She, it was a small apartment. So to be able to fit a crew and move the cameras, you have to be able to move the wall, which is in real life, really complex to do. So you do it in studios. You can do top shots. You can do the lighting you want. So we had a beautiful, beautiful backdrop of Paris behind it. And it's all hand painted. And you had all those craft people mm. around uh, the studios who were just, amazing it's amazing to see it's kind of being inside of yeah inside of inside of inside the art I don't know how to better say it and yeah yeah. so those studios are really if anybody goes to Berlin or to Rome um, are visitable so it's really great stuff to visit because it's yeah okay so there you are you're at this Babersberg golden age of movie place in in berlin you're making an international film you've 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 kind of made it um, well i could had... yeah in my head i made it and i didn't know it was such a long road afterwards but yeah then i got an offer to go to paris by the balenciaga production house and i was i decided not to do it there was there was something in me who said i'm not a big city girl and and i was starting to get my environment clearer in Belgium, then came after that. So, you know, and also it, it's it, it, it kind of need to remember that in, in, the, in the 90s, again, I was, uh, though the Balenciaga producer was a woman, but it was still an era very complex for uh, younger women to try to be entrepreneur. And, yeah. and also that's part of the job. Uh, I think what I was mentioning before, my fear, I have no fear of tomorrow, has to, is a, a, a kind of an entrepreneurial uh, thought. And uh, I'm going to build my own business. And so I felt Paris was too big um, and, and not the place I wanted to be anyway, because I'm, I like Paris, but I don't like Paris at the same time mm-hmm. and already then and still now. And what happened is that, oh God, this is so long ago. What happened is that those young kids came to my office one day, my office, big name, my one room in my one apartment, one room apartment. 
and said, oh, we heard you are producing films. You know, we know you've done the Chantal Ackerman and we have this script. And we also know, because one of the things I said to myself, if I need to make it, I need the tools. So they came out, Sony came out with those mini cassette kind of camcorder and I bought one. It was quite expensive at the time. And I was like, well, I have the tool. Now I need the stories, right? But they came for the tool. And I was like, yeah, I'll give you my camera if you want for your film, but I'd love to read the script. And I fell in love with the script. And I say, not only I'm going to give you the camera, but I'm going to find money for the film. And that's really my first, that's yet another thing into being a producer because it's a generic term for a lot of different kind of way of working as a producer as more moving into the creative producing space. Okay, I was just by the way, again, wicking madly while you were talking there. Babelsberg Studios, for those who, I wondered about this, if it was where Metropolis was made, you know, the great... I think so. It was, it was. Yeah. And, so um, it's really even more than a century old. Yeah, well, it goes back to 1912, apparently. But if you, if people, if listeners might think it's consigned to history, think again, uh, V for Vendetta, Captain America, Civil War... Inglorious Bastards, The Bourne Ultimatum, Cloud Atlas, The Grand Budapest Hotel, one of the Hunger Games, et cetera, et cetera, and The Matrix Resurrections, all filmed there. So interesting. For those of us who, you know, see movies now, mostly on Netflix, honestly, we all kind of think Hollywood. And even if they're sort of apparently Hollywood movies, and I know this from my time um, riding on movie sets to finance my way through college, um, that... I would be at Pinewood or Shepparton or somewhere on location and sitting around on horses for you know hours and hours and hours waiting to be told to do something for five minutes and then go home after sitting on the horse for 10 hours, you know, and that's, as you know, what mo- life on movie sets is, it's waiting around. But often these movies would be shot partly there, but of course part, shot, part, shot partly elsewhere, but they might be American movies but they'd be shot in England for tax reasons or this or that and it was this kind of I remember at the time realizing oh my gosh this is this complex 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 world so just before you go on there thank you for illuminating for those of us in you know don't know Babelsberg and their studio tours there if you're next in Berlin and Potsdam the Weimar film thing go check it out so okay so now you're at the point Diana where having had this conversation in a bar in in israel and by hook and by crook you have now found yourself going out to get your first money for a movie yeah and it's now now the movie life has shifted to paris how do you how do you find money to make a film and what is this film again by the way give us the time that film that film is a great film that film is called thomas in love thomas in love so, yeah, we can do a whole podcast on that one. Okay. Uh, another time. But yeah. How, how did you how did you how did you find the money for Thomas in Love? Well, we in Europe, so we have a lot of we are there's a lot of investment from the governments into the culture. So, we are calling it in the jargon of filmmaking soft funding. So, okay. it's all the subsidies. So you go subsidy, then you go market, meaning broadcaster, distributors, and then you go to international sales, which are the people who will sell the film around the world. Those were the scheme at the time that I started. There are many more today, as the one you mentioned, tax credit, 
and regional fund today. And then, of course, there's private equity. But at a time in Europe, it was only subsidy and a little bit of a little bit of market money, like a broadcaster or, of course, there were no streamers at the time. And then distribution, the exhibition, the theaters, um, the, the, those were the way of financing. They were, you know, so that's how I got the first one made. It was very low budget, ended up in Venice, film festival in competition. And yeah, and then, and it actually sold all over the world. It was quite a big success. Just, just to pause you there, Thomas is an agoraphobe who hasn't left his apartment in eight years. His psychoanalyst consults him to meet a woman through some online services. And of course, this is a 2000 movie when this was something quite new. Will he find love online? Will he ever leave his apartment? So, okay, so you're making this this movie in 2000 when the whole online.com thing is still somewhat new. Online yeah, dating. especially in Europe. Right. And the online dating then, you know, people would have, would have died rather than admit that they were looking for love online, let alone yeah. Tinder yeah. and Grindr. And you know, now it's like, what, you're not on Tinder? You know, what? You know, do you remember? It's it, it, it's so interesting how social norms move on so fast. But of course- Yeah, that and also that was, too, I think, the part it? of, I mean, to, to just uh, add to that, I think that was part of the, of the success because everybody was like, the way we are with artificial intelligence, not knowing what was, that revolution was starting, everybody was freaked out. I said, oh, wow, you're going to make love on online and, you know, your, your life will be dictated. I said, of course not. But so we, we, we unknowingly, because we're Belgian, so we have no afterthought. We just like what we do. And like, there's no like a long-term thought about it, but that those kids or those directors that came to me and writers that came to me said, they, that's the way they were looking at the future. And I and what I love, I still love the film because I saw I sold it like a lot during COVID. Funnily enough, I resold the rights to uh, a lot of broadcaster and local streamers during COVID because it's exactly that. And the funny thing also is that my director, who's a very Christian man, I have to say, uh, probably the only one that I know who's devoted Christian, um, was um, everybody had tattoos. In the a lot of people had tattoo in the in the film, and it was a time there were no tattoos. Yeah, oh. before there was a. Tattoo. And it was always a big discussion. Oh, yeah. I say, why is everybody having tattoos? They say one day people will lose God; they will need to connect to something else. Tattoo will be the way. Now that I look around me, I have to say, he's still a good friend, and it was like, how visionary was he? Whether on his belief, but at least the way he saw the world becoming, and and so Thomas in Love was was playing on the fears of what internet would be without us knowing. We we're just playing with the, the idea. And so, and there, that's really when things start to take off because of the success of that film, because it was at the Venice Film Festival in competition and because, you know, it was sold all over. And so my name started to go around the circles of, well, she actually, you know, know how to do stuff. Now, I just want to pause you again there to ask you a couple of questions. So these are the kinds of things one hears when one is listening to movie people being interviewed. Oh, you know, well, I... I've got the money that's sort of a bit this way, and then I sold it here. Having made and sold an independent movie myself, I know that it's not quite such a smooth process. When you say that, and I think for listeners, this is quite fascinating, how movies get financed and how they get sold. And of course, this is part of living free and riding free, that one would like to 
maybe do this sort of thing for a living. I know you said that you found the money to make the film through EU subsidies for the arts, but I'm sure there's millions of people constantly trying to dip into those um, piles of money. What made you successful there? And then I'm going to ask you as a subsequent question, how do you sell a film at a festival? So let's start with the the first one. How do you get this eu money that's floating around but there's a bazillion people out there trying to get it what okay, makes it successful two, yeah it's it's a good question because i think it's a quite beautiful definition of europe actually in which i believe really dearly and fiercely firstly there is the uh, national funding so you you have to understand something about the film industry we are as much a creative industry as a, we are an industry So those two poles are really interesting and continue to be throughout my career interesting because we provide a lot of work for a lot of people. It's a huge provider of work. And at the same time, we are a voice of a country. So the same way Belgian chocolate is known around the world, I wish Belgian film were known around the world, but it has actually a similar value in terms of employment and in in terms of, of... getting people to know us. I'll give you an example that I think is going to highlight much more is that, for example, when there was Green Card, this film was, I'm not even going to name the name of the actor, a nameable French actor today. The film was such a big success. It was shot in New York. The New York then film commission was starting, decided to put a tax break because they realized that films bring tourism. Uh, and people go to southern France to look at the chocolate where chocolate the um, chocolate film was uh, shot. Yeah. It brings people. When I go to New Zealand, because um, my son wants to go and see where Lord of the Rings was shot, then it brings stories. There's an after effect to the industry. It was extremely important for the people, for the places where it was shot. So you have to consider that films in itself is a creative creative act. But at the same time, it's also a return on economy for the places where films are shot. And that's why today it wasn't happening. Then you see all, every single region, I won't say in the world, but at least at, in Europe, in the US, and now it's going, it's, it's opening up to the rest of the world. The Middle East per se have what we call regional funding, which means that come to us, we'll give you money, part of the money you need for your shoot, because if the film is successful, they know it will trigger tourism. Right, interesting. So, I didn't know that. I thought the tax breaks were were from a different thing. I didn't realize they were connected to tourism. That's really interesting. So, that, so yeah, they're, and, ahead. they're thinking if this movie gets made and is successful, people are going to want to come and check out the locations. Yeah, not only that, it also provides a lot of work. I mean, I can give you an example, for example, of the southern region of Sweden, which is the region of Malmö and Gothenburg. Uh, That region was entirely, I mean, the main business was Saab, those cars. If you remember, everybody wanted to have a Saab, at least. Yeah, yeah, Saabs, yeah, yeah. Uh, And there was this one. get a moose and survive. No, that was Volvo. Sorry, yeah, yeah. So the thing is that the entire, this entire region mainly lived off of that one industry. And this one politician way back then, like 25 years ago, 
ask the question, what if the car industry crashes? What's going to happen to the people who live there? Mm. And so he managed, it was really, I, I mean, and this is really how the regional funds started to be created. He managed to convince the politician to invest in filmmaking. They built a studio where Las Ventrilles is mainly shooting. I don't know. I don't remember the name of the studio. They create a special branch at the university for art directing and other uh, profession in the in the film business, and they start to give subsidies out, a lot of subsidies, and then it boomed because we are very cheap people. We go where the money is. Huh? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, Lars von Trier went to shoot there, open a production company there, but a lot of other a lot of other films were made there, and when Sab actually crashed. They, of course, failed it, but not as much if, as if there was no alternative to it. So that's what the industry part of our job. It's, so that's why we also very, we can make policy change, either because of the content, and I'll give you another example if you'd want about that, or because of the uh, sheer manpower we use on making films. We do make a difference. And, and it's culture also. Two, one other thing I want to mention re regarding Europe, you're right, there is European money. The European money is basically linked to the creation of the European Union, which was set up after World War II to make sure that we will never fight each other again and oblige us somehow to collaborate with each other. So besides the national funding, you have the European funding. European funding is only given if you are co-producing, that's the term, with other European countries. So let, for example, if I have a film where the base money is in Belgium, but I'm gonna go to shoot in Slovenia because I need mountains, and then gonna go to Spain because I need beach, and it can be anywhere in Europe. The fact that I'm working with another two European country or even only one allows me to go to supra-funding, European funding. And this is really stems from that time after World War II when, you know, they needed to find Schumann and the rest of them needed to find a solution for the European not to fight each other. So, so far it's still holding a little bit, but that allowed us, that's how we start then to co-produce with other countries, discover other way of telling stories, discovering new talent, discovering other way of functioning and getting to know each other better. Right. So, I mean, something I was going to ask you was, you know, you said you're looking back on your younger self saying, well, I wanted to change the world. And I, you know, I was worried about social injustice. And I was going to say, OK, well, how did films like Thomas in Love and uh, Couch in New York and so on look at that? But it's quite interesting to look at it through this lens now later to say, and I, I do know that you have obviously and still do make films that do address social injustice. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But it's something which might would not have occurred to me until you made this point just now. For example, this story in South Sweden, where someone says, look, what happens if this industry crashes? This is the only thing we've got. Some far-sighted person persuades government to invest down there in an industry that hasn't really yet happened. They invest, the car industry does indeed crash, and they've got something. And the, the, where the note I made here was policy change. Oh, I think you, you're right that that, that the... The influence that movies have, the only thing I think that's that's ever exceeded it, which is now beginning to exceed it, is, of course, computer gaming. And that, of course, is now marrying perhaps yeah. an unholy alliance, but nonetheless marrying 
the movie industry. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm going to have to tell you, Robert, it's not only the impact of the industry as an industry, it's also the impact of content. When you have films like Rosetta, who was a Pandora, the Belgian Pandora in, I can't remember when, 90s something, the film was about a young woman not being able to find, who dropped out of the society, of, it was on the margin of society and had to endure labor, almost forced labor, no pay, harassment, and so forth. And it was a trend, it started a trend, it was a trend where the young people coming on the market without any skills, socially, I mean, literally here, uh, were overlooked, there was no protection for them. And after the film came out, became the Rosetta Law to protect the kids. So this is the social impact. You have that yeah, in documentaries. Absolutely. absolutely. You have the beautiful example of in uh, Kenya of Rafiki, mm. who was the first film recently who spoke about homosexuality, who was banned, but because he was taken in the festival, because it was a revelation of a voice from coming from Kenya on LGBTQ issues, all of the sudden it opened, then it, it allowed the discussion on LGBTQ rights in Kenya and in Africa as a whole, it, but it starts, it's a trigger for more. So you have the entertainment world, like I did. Thomas in Love for me was a social, totally political and social film, because it had to do with somebody who was neurodivergent, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody yeah, was like yeah. everybody was laughing. But yeah. literally when you have that, I mean it it is about then what do we do with the people in our society? And he so he, the world is invented around that. But I think you have the entertainment world. And yes, I saw Barbie and I love it. And I think it's still quite political actually. But I think everything you see, you can actually look at the political angle of it. Some you might like and some you might hate and that's totally okay. And I think that's actually what makes the world better. But the fact is to go and see it and decide which film you're gonna go and see and not being, not being dictated by the algorithm and still keep the curiosity about the film. Yeah, let's go and see a Chinese film and let's go and see mm. you know, a South African film and let's go and see a Chilean film. It's amazing how it connects because we all live differently the same things. It's true. And I think that's something that's become more mainstream now. I mean, for example, you know, if you take a long haul airline flight, some years ago, the movies that would have been offered would have just been all new releases and some classics. Now, you know, even on something like American Airlines, which is a relatively conservative, uh, would make relatively conservative offerings. I fly back and forth um, to Texas on American all the time. And I, I noticed that just sometime before COVID, they started doing all this international cinema. And I don't think they were doing it particularly through a social message motivation i think they were realizing that they just had a lot of international passengers who kind of wanted to see these films and suddenly you had all these movies about issues in the arabic world and issues in india and issues in thailand and that, that you just and even if only a, a certain fraction of the of the passengers are watching them it's still a much greater group than would have been in traditional quote-unquote art house cinema or cinemas, but it's yeah. whether the cinema will take it. That's another indeed. Uh, that's another door to open or not. I'd rather not because it's very complex. But mm. you're right, and I would I did I know when I fly to Ethiopian airline wherever I go, I fly to Qatar Airways, or I flew right now a lot to Canada. 
the uh, I'm enjoying seeing films that I would never see anywhere else. So it's not the best condition, of course, because the headphones are awful, but it's still it's still some way to discover instead of looking again at an American film or you know something that you've heard of and, and just take the time because you're stuck in the airplane anyway. But I would still tell you, try to, you know, the big screen is a unique experience. But yeah. I just want to address the second uh, question you asked me regarding how do you sell a film. So basically, the way it's structured is that not every, not everybody can do the good job, right? So the world of selling is a world apart. So you basically there are a lot of companies that are selling films, and those those and they're actually interesting enough have dedicated person per region of the world. So if somebody sells a film in Europe, if you have a sales agent that they call that sells a film in Europe, will not be able to sell a film in Asia because it's all through connection and who do you know and what kind of film worked, what kind of film didn't work in a specific region. So when you go and shop, quote unquote, for a sales agent for your film, it depends on the genre, whether it's kids film, horror, romance, you know, art house, and, you know, name, you know, action, or you name all the genre of the films, do you would have dedicated sales agent for either the genre. And if it's more of a kind of social drama, then they will tell you this, you know, we can see it work here and there. Um, they will actually, they know so well the market, they have the pulse, the hand, you know, they have the pulse of the market, they know exactly what sells where, how, how much, and everything. Those guys are, uh, those guys, sorry, those people are master of the world in knowing what's happening, how does it work. Of course, for Art House Film, the first stop necessary to make it happen is a A-list, what we call in our language, a A-list festival. So A-list festival is, it's, there are very few of them. So you can, it's uh, Busan in Korea. It's Cannes Film Festival. It's Venice Film Festival, San Sebastian in Spain Film Festival. And there's probably a few others. Interesting enough, none of them in North America. Not Sundance? Um, Sundance, I'm not sure it's A-list. I'm not sure. It's very specific. It's a world classification. But once you have your film in competition or a sidebar competition in those festivals, the eyes of the world are on those films. So just to give you an appreciation of how complex it is, we have a film this year in competition in Venice. So it's upcoming in a month. The film is called Green Border. It's a Polish, Belgian, French, Czech co-production. It's based, it's a beautiful film by veteran filmmaker Agnieszka Holland. And when Alberto Barbera, the head of the Venice Film Festival, announced the lineup of this year, he actually mentioned that he watched more than 5,000 films. And they are make, maybe taking for the entire not only the competition, but the sidebar, the special screenings and all that, they maybe take 80 films. So the level, that's why then all the eyes for the good or the worse, because I had film in the film festival in Cannes were in competition, they should have never get there because it, they get destroyed. But all the eyes are focused on those films and you know that those films will have more sales 
especially for the art house again, I'm not talking about the Netflix films and I'm not talking about the Amazon films. And I'm also little, not that much talking about the American films, but for the European and non-European, because we're not the only one in the world, there are African, Asian, South American films. Those being able to be selected in one of those festivals is essential for the film. So presumably it must be rather difficult to get your film into one of these festivals. How do you do that? Well, just make good films. Yeah. How do you submit? What's the submission process? Well, gatekeepers. How do you get past the gatekeepers? Well, sales agent is a sales agent and that gatekeeper is the the artistic director of the festivals that are gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. It's really, I mean, I have counterexample of amazing film that were never in festivals. Sometimes they also miss. I can think about a Belgian film was called in English broke. Man, my my brain is 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 on the verge of collapsing. In French, it was called Alabama Monroe, but it's not in French. The original title is Broken Circle Breakdown. Mm-hmm. A beautiful, beautiful film. That film went through the cracks of every festival, but it was an amazing sales agent, a German sales agent called Match Factory. And they managed to turn it around in Berlin where they did, it's a based on country music. So they had the country music band coming and they get people interested in it. And of course the director had made a huge buzz in Cannes with his previous film, whose poster was a lot of men naked on bikes. And so they had the men, naked men on bikes, they're actually the actors riding their bikes on the croisette. So he was known for the first film. So he was not like a new upcomer, but that film wasn't selected in any festival. Not at least it became afterwards, it became like a huge event. So it's marketing slash great concept. Where should the film go? That's what the sales agent do. This film is good for this festival. It's not good. It's going to get killed in this festival or it's too small for this festival. So it's a whole continuous conversation we have with this so important part of getting a film to the market. And it starts at script. Usually you get your, your sales agent at the script level and they will say yes or no, but those that say yes, then they will see the the, the cut, the editing cut, and then they will work with us, with production director, on the on the communication, the marketing, the poster, and where it's best placed. Sales agent will come in before you've actually shot the movie on the basis of the script. Well, yeah, there are two reasons for that. Once they used to be able, and they still bring a lot of money. They can bring private equity. They can pre-sell to territories. Let's say I have a film, my sales agent love. It's a great subject, and then we're gonna go and pre-sell to the UK, and we're gonna we could pre-sell to the US, and that money. And when goes, you say pre-sell, you're talking to distribution. Uh, distrib- yeah, to, sorry, to distributor. And the pre-sale notion is that this they buy on script. Okay. They don't buy a bit, like, a bit like a publisher buying on a proposal. A book yes. Proposal. Okay. Okay. That I understand. Especially, but then you have to package. I mean, that mm-hmm. they just don't read the script and say we want it. They want to know who are the actors, who's the the cameraman. The, so you have to have good actors and, and a director attached. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. It's the packaging, what we call the packaging of the film. So the, this is an extremely important uh, part of the uh, way the film circulates and the fact that you either see them on Netflix when it's not an original or Amazon or Apple, but and, and or you see it in the theater. 
that's because behind that, before the theater, there's a di local distributor, but the local distributor then gets in touch with a sales agent to be able to get the film. And then this, hopefully, what you hope for is a bid war on the film. How much are you going to, how much are you going to pay? Yeah. That the money then goes back to the uh, investors originally and then to me. Right. So in terms of getting all of these people attached you've got you've got to have your director you've got to have some actors attached before you can go to the film it's interesting it comes back down looking at my notes here you said script where you began at the beginning of this interview which is storytelling right if if yes. the story is not sound if the script is not amazingly compelling then presumably these people will not attach themselves, right? So that the, the script must be at the end of the day the most important thing. Yeah, it's it's script and it's a vision, how it will be made, and it's an interesting question. Yeah, it's it's a combination of it's an alignment of it's an alignment. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's the right script with the right director and the right actors. But without the script, those that director and those actors... Oh, there's nothing. Yeah. Without the story, there's nothing. So, the, so the, the, the raw material is always, always the story. Yeah. And the raw material, what's funny, maybe your listening listener will not know, but I'm just going to tell the truth that is so weird for the entire world, and you know it better than I do, Rufford is the fact that the we always think about filming and filming and the production of a film, but the writing of a script takes years. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. actually the shorter periods in the whole process of making a film is the shooting. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. shooting is usually in Europe is around 35 to 40 days for a film. It could go to 60, of course, it can go to much, much higher number of days depending on the film. But the post-production, meaning the editing and the VFX yeah. and the music and the sound and the putting the film together, which is a lot of uh, technical steps after that, can take you know almost a year for more complex film. Usually it takes nine months, but the writing of the script is something that can take a long time. And, and yeah. av on average, when you have an idea or you have because I'm not always starting on script. I'm also either on a book, as you heard, and I'm still doing that, and and or just an idea, an article, a podcast. Now, it 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 can take. You know, the average for a film to be made in the right circumstances is around four to five years. So that's why when you're saying you know making a few films at the same time is because you have to make a living also. And, uh, and so there's no other option for producer and which also shows the extremely complex work of directors because they only attach to maybe one or two films or one TV series and a film. So it, the process is extremely long to, to get yeah, uh, from start to finish. So how do you get paid as a producer if, if everything is speculative and it's going to take four to five years from conception to execution and that's before you've even sold the thing yeah. how on earth can you pay the rent in the meantime so there's there's a few there's i mean depending on where you are in your career so there's a few a few things 
as I mentioned, they were, we are in Europe, so there's the subsidy that allows you to get some money for the development. What we call the development is actually the process of writing. Usually that money goes to the director, actually, and never to the producer, which is historically like that, and that's the way it is. Then you can find partners to partner with, and, and you can get private equity for the development. It's rare, but you can still get it if somebody really believes into the story. But basically, the way producers make a living mainly is actually by filming. So you put together a budget. Once you have a script, you have to budget it. So you put together a budget. How many days of shooting? How many extras? Uh, how many locations? Where is it going to be shot, etc. Once you have the budget, usually producers keep, no, are budgeting themselves at around 17% of the cost of the film. The 17% are divided and it's very regulated. So we can't really, uh, Germany will be much less. Germany would be 10%. France is, if I'm 12%. It's per country. It's a very re regulated because we're working with public funding. So it's very regulated. So the 17% is 10% for producer, which means production company is 7% for overheads. Like, you know, the back office, my accountant, my financial director, you know, my assistant are all paid out of that. More often than not, you will hear a lot of European producers say, well, I never get that. Of course, you never, because you're never sure you're gonna get the amount, total amount of the budget you need. So more often than not, they reinvest virtually that money into the finance of the film. So once you finance the film, so you have a lot of partners, so it's like a cake and you divide your cake and everybody get a share according to what they put, except exception. the exception is private equity, which kind of serve itself before and a little more than everybody else. You have to make sure you still have some crumbs left at the end of the day. And then, and then the film goes out and the film is sold. So the money triggers comes back to you on that level. Now, the fact that I'm making, I've made a lot of film, there's still money on, on oncoming, incoming money from all the films, not all of them, but a lot of films that I've made. So after a few years and starting to have what we call slate of films, you start to generate, your films start to generate money that come back to you. And then you reinvest those films, you reinvest that money in further projects, in buying IP and all that. So the equilibrium- IP being of, intellectual property. Yeah, intellectual property. Those who don't know, right, yeah. Yeah, so the, the equilibrium is really to make sure that you pay your rent. And also when the company grows, make sure that you pay your staff. Yeah. So your business model is changing. Obviously, because it's not anymore one person, it's maybe two, three, at times much more than that. My latest company, we were 12. So the pressure it puts on you to bring bigger projects, to make more margin, to make sure that they're more in tune with what the market wants, shifts your way of looking at the stories you're going to develop. You cannot go to the first, like I've done so many times, and there are still you know, my, un unfortunately for a lot of people, but fortunately for me and unfortunately for whatever reason, but you're going to understand what I'm getting at. I'm still going to go after the first film from Peru 
or I'm still going to go because those are the stories that I love. But I have to compensate it with comedies. I really love comedies. So I'm doing and comedies. I'm not even looking at selling them around the world. Comedies don't sell well, but they do bring audience in my home, in my country. So I've done a lot of comedies, which are not art house, but I think comedies are not another way of being of telling stories. And I really love that. But I so I I really juggle between what's where is my heart, where is my pocket? And that's how you build basically the film you're going to go after it's a business sense it's just business modeling it's right and when you say that the films generate income after they've been made presumably that's because rights in different areas of the world get sold rights exactly. to new online streaming things rights to television rights and airlines okay airlines right right so and that these things get sold gradually over some years after the initial film distribution in for say cinema or whatever has been sold right so that you can you can keep selling that film yeah. to different areas for a decade or more and it yeah will... well at the spend the lifespan of a film unless it's a super master film or a cult film becomes a cult film or is a winner of uh, those a-list festival golden bear pandor you know or a lion in venice the lifespan on the market is maybe two to three years. Yeah. So I have a few that I've outlived that because they mm -hmm. became cults without, you know, you're not making a cult film. Right? It's the audience who decide it's cult. But yeah, otherwise, so it's it's really the balancing act that it's so complex in this world that for any entrepreneur, but especially in our world, balancing act between keep on being, keep on doing the things that you're good at and defending voices that might not have an outlet and keep on making films that allow you to keep on doing that. So it's always been oscillating between the two, as far as I'm concerned and, and the films I've made, always. Okay, so we left you last in the year 2000 with this film, A Couch in New York, which was a commercial break. But as you said, also, oddly enough, a film about neurodivergence. No, that was Thomas in Love. That was Thomas in Love. Yes. Well, right. Although I, I imagine that the couch in New York character too, uh, you're, you're dealing with this idea of that you know the crusty, fusty person who's you know not lucky in love. Da 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 da. Which yeah. these days we probably call that person perhaps Asperger's or you know somewhere on the autism spectrum. But of course back then we weren't using that sort of language. Not at all. You you said yes. You know every every film becomes a political act to some degree because of the way it affects how people look at social things it can affect policy for example like the story you told in south sweden when saab collapsed and so on yeah i do know that activism is dear to your heart and you mentioned a little bit earlier that you've been back and forth in to canada and you've also been making other films in other parts of the world that have to do with social issues so where does it go for you after in love and so I'm making a lot of film and I'm I'm giving a try documentaries I'm not very good at it I think I have too much perversion for I know really wrong term I think I I think I have a hard time I just want to change the world so documentary is too much in my face but I love them absolutely and I'm like you know we had those discussions before they're just amazing and I just don't get the feel for it I don't think I'm the right person for documentaries and Believe you me, every two minutes I have an idea for a documentary. So mm. 
anyway, so I'm trying that. Uh, I'm doing a lot of co-production with France and those are the reverse where French people want the Belgian money. So I'm like working like a mad person. I have, at the end of the 90s, I have a, a personal issue, health issue that I have to stop for two years. Not sure I'm going to be able to get back. And that was quite a traumatic time personally. So I had to take like a year break around 96, 97. It lasted actually more than that. Sorry. It's around 97 to 99 um, of not being able to work. My parents dying uh, one after 10 months apart. And also my decision that I was still quite young, I have to say. And the decision that maybe the party was a little over of like going right and left, taking a plane here, going there, doing this, going to festival, you know, and, but it wasn't true. That's what I thought at the time. And so I decided that maybe I had another, I had to consider my life. So it was a really two year, I had to break down. It wasn't a breakdown. That was a physical stop. I couldn't work, but it wasn't, you know, it was physical. It wasn't anything mental or, you know, kind of a burnout or whatever, not that. Then I had another break 10 years after we might get into it, but, and then I've decided my life was maybe not only centered about those things that I was making, all those films that I was making. And I decided then that I would go and adopt my first child. So that was a big, 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 and I was still working. I went back to work and, but it gives you another kind for anybody, anybody who's a parent knows when a child comes, how much energy gives you to do even more. Wonderful. I have and, no idea uh, what you mean, Diana. Yeah. 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 It's just like, you know, this energy. And then I, I got another amazing, uh, um, I'm not really sure I'm on timeline, but I think it was around uh, those same time that I was waiting at the taxi station in Brussels at the uh, train station and it was pouring rain as it usually is. And there was this tour that was putting people in taxis, you know, because otherwise people would go crazy and start to fight each other. And that person was so amazingly funny. It was just, it was just sunshine. And I just couldn't figure out how somebody could be doing that job and be really funny. So we engaged in the discussion and I kept on saying to the people, no, take that taxi, it's fine. And I was talking to him and he was like, yeah, I do that, you know, but I really want to get into films. And it just started like that. And it became my biggest hit ever. It was a young, who he also became a big director um, afterwards. We did one film, two films together, and he was the a Belgian-Moroccan young kid. And so I, I said to him, well, listen, you know, maybe it's our lucky break for you and I, if you want, we can keep on having this discussion. He took me, he took him a few months to call me back and he came with a comedy called the barons and the barons. Uh, the barons like kingdom belgium then the barons you know you have the duke i don't know how it's called yeah yeah, yeah. barons yeah 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 and it was and it was the first time i also had this weirdly enough with all my travel and all my storytelling from everybody around the world they went to china south africa whatever all of a sudden I realized that there is a whole community in Belgium, at least in Brussels, of 
Belgian from Moroccan descent that had no voice. And that was a beautiful moment because we laughed a lot and we cried a lot and it was a massive hit, massive, massive hit. Everybody went around and I loved it because, you know, when you say, how do you sell the film? How do you finance the film? That was my best ever financing scheme, not because people wanted it, because nobody wanted it. So I had to find the resources to play against the machine somehow and to have all those executives, again, the same one, with suits. And I come with this project about the Moroccan community in Brussels. And they were like, yeah, well, no, no thanks. And I was, so I had to switch. I had to understand that I had to outsmart them. And I really did it. And we did it together. And it was just amazing how it went because that film being a comedy went from the cultural pages of the newspaper into the society page of the newspaper. And that's exactly what you want. That's why we call the crossover. Okay. And- um, By the way, I've just, I've just, I've just wikied it for the listeners, the Barons, this sounds great, but it does sound like it must've been a hard sell commercially. In Brussels, three friends lead a life of pleasant apathy. They spend their days loafing around in unhurried torpor, bantering with each other and adhering to the theory that the fewer steps one takes, the richer one's interior, one's interior life. But as is so often the case, when real life crashes unpleasantly into their dream world, Hassan, Aziz and Munir are forced to deal with life, love and the future. This must have yeah, been I fired the person who wrote that, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, basically, that wasn't you, but you know, basically, what it was is like the cliche assumption when you see three Moroccan kids standing on the wall, they are thieves, yeah, except they're not. Just society hasn't opened the door to them, so the only job they can get is bus driver in the neighborhood. And those guys have other other, other dreams. Mm. So that's exactly how the pitch went for the for the financing, because the pitch was, yeah, it's a first film about you know the young Moroccans. That da, da, da. the people were like not even listening to me, and you don't even need to, they don't need to say anything. I saw the Brazilian language, but when I came with a pitch and say, so what do you say when you see five Moroccans in a brand new BMW? Hundred percent of the answers were it's stolen. Yeah, sure. And I was, then my pitch was like, anybody, any five people can buy any car. The problem with Orpheum is that there are six and there's only five seats. Right. It had nothing to do with the story. But then I triggered their attention and that's how we started financing the film. And it's a really, really funny film. It's extremely funny, but it made a whole change. And what was delight delighting is that all of a sudden, that neighborhood who unfortunately got a worse reputation during the attack, which is Molenbeek, it's right next to me where I'm sitting right now, who's, who was always where the Moroccan fami uh, families is being gentrified now, unfortunately, also for those city, but where the Moroccan families uh, were, was unknown. He was like, don't go there, you're going to get killed. You know, and we changed, we put a spotlight on it. And say no, they're normal people having normal family life, and they just you and they just you know, 
they they not giving the opportunity. There was no representation in the newspaper, in politics, in nowhere of the Moroccan community then. And it did make the change. So I'm very proud of that one. And you see, you make change with comedies. I'm a really firm believer in that. Absolutely, you because don't need drama and you don't need tears. Also, yeah, no, absolutely. Because what what is humor but um, perspective? Humor allows you to see a situation from the outside and to to put your prejudices aside, and it bonds people for sure. You know, the the right joke cracked at the right moment will always relieve tension. You know, it's it's. I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's easy to make people cry. It's much harder to make them laugh. Indeed. Uh, but I saw beautiful, be- as you know, as I was saying with the coach in New York, I was going to every every screening, which I do actually for all my films. And I saw beautiful scene in theater. And that's why I, you know, I'm a firm believer that the collective experience of seeing films with other people is essential, is essential. Seeing your film on your phone is fine. Seeing the film in the plane is fine. Seeing a film on Netflix is fine, but it will never replace that experience. Never. And if if you were to go only twice a year to the cinema, it's worth it. Mm. And I saw amazing scenes during those screenings where like older white people would come and were like the, the, the theater was full of like Moroccan kids because that was the film for them also. But the crossover was that at the end of the screening, I saw this old woman like just embracing the young guy next to him, uh, next to her, and saying, "You know, I'm so sorry. We don't know who you are." So this is unbeatable. This is worth like all the hardship and the hurt and the craziness of the business. It is worth that, really. Frankly, I, I'm a firm believer in that. So yeah, and so that even like then launched even more the company. I mean, that we became the company was just like booming. There was like everyday calls to make more films, co-production, whatever. And so I enjoyed that that moment till till 2000. I think it was, uh, my son was then nine. So it must have been 2007, eight, where my best friend lost her daughter to leukemia. And I remember the eulogy at the church. Well, she was in the film business, my friend, or she still is in the film business. And a very famous director was the godfather of her daughter, Jaco van der Maal, who's an amazing person. And he gave a eulogy and I came out of there completely shaken. The eulogy was basically of all the things we could have done with you, all the, all the dreams we could have dreamt. And I knew I was really tired by then because we had so much work and the kids that I had, my, I adopted my daughter, also, and I realized I just didn't have the time. And I think to recognize those moments where it's not working for you, where everything becomes a burden, where you're not happy with what you do and you probably do a little crap because you're into this machine, endless machine of producing and producing. I had a partner then, partner at work. And I called him from the car and I say, I'm going to take a break and it's going to last a year. And and that was June and I left. I left for another year. I should have maybe, but I left for nine months and I went around the world with my kids, just forgot everything. And I said to everybody, I am not reachable. So I took my two kids and we went, yeah, beautiful trip. We went from Europe to Los Angeles to 
Tahiti to Cook Island, New Zealand, Australia, and we finished in South Africa. And we toured, we just went into the nature barefoot, no leg, almost no luggage, and just and just took the time to hug trees and be together. The kids were small, it was really crazy, but, but I just did it. I knew I needed to refill myself. Emotionally, I needed to connect with my kids and I needed to not go crazy because I really felt the rabbit hole coming really, really fast and I couldn't do it anymore. And then when I came back, my partner during that time actually produced a film that I was involved with and he took over and I immediately, <laughs> it's kind of funny. I mean, it's funny for me, it might not be funny for anyone, but I went from barefoot to high heel to go the red carpet in Berlin because we're in competition and unannounced. And I plunged right back into it. But those, he had to survive eight months of not working, not thinking. I didn't read any book, didn't enter any mail. It was early anyway. It was complicated with the mails like across the world and the phone was barely whatever. You know, it was pre, everything's uh, fast. It was just, I think, the best thing I did for myself. And we need, and I, I've, I'm advising that because I'm teaching now a lot. And I'm advising not to take a break, but really the mental health issues into the work environment, at least in the industry, has been overlooked for so many, many years. And now it's becoming, of course, front page of, you know, everyone. We do need to take care of ourselves. And this work can just absorb you 100%. Mm. Forget who you are. It's not, it's worth it. And it's obviously not worth it. Well, I think it's cyclical. Yeah, I mean, as I, th I think one is required to sometimes be an absolute slave and servant of one's work, and then one is required sometimes to break from it. Yeah, but the work doesn't allow you to do that, you know. So you have to do it for yourself. Exactly. You're going to say, "Oh no, you know what? <laughs> you are, you know." I mean, some countries do that, and in the teaching profession, especially, go and take a sabbatical, and we'll pay for it. Yeah, uh, but. Otherwise, no. I mean, sure. again, I find myself so privileged every level of my life, not only on the decision, I mean, on the decision taking, on the freedom I have to do and not to do, to, of course, it comes with a lot of other things, but on these, those essentials, I feel myself so privileged. Mm. The self-determination, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I don't think, I think, yeah, I... It's, I wish I could, it's really what I'm trying to stress out to the younger professional coming to the market is recognize when it doesn't work. It recognize when you're hurting and it's not a given. It's definitely, and depends who you are in which part of the world, which color of skin you have, which belief you have. It's much harder for a lot of people. Yeah. So yeah, that's 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 the, 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 the like, and so that's what I've been doing from that time. I started to teach a lot because I think it. How did it, the teaching begin for you? Well, it, it became back then. They just called me and say, "Oh, would you like to train?" And I was like, "Yeah, I can try. See how it works." And who, I who called you? Who? What? So what this is... same workshop I did. Remember in '93 or something like that. The Euro European Entrepreneur of Europe. Mm -hmm. I've heard. So they called me and say, well, we're looking for a new, what they call group leader or expert or whatever. And it's uh, basically 
taking a group, selected, they select a group of 15 producer. It's actually 50, it's divided in four groups and you trade them throughout one year and you meet three times during that one year. And they have a lot of work to do in between on the project, on the companies and everything. So I really started in 2007 or eight or nine, around that period when I came back, I think. And I just like, as much as I love making films, I love that equally. And I'm so again, privileged to be able to do it. And still today, so I've been doing training in Europe and I've been doing training in the Caribbean and I've trained in some universities like Sorbonne Master and stuff like that. But those, but the one I'm training are professional. They're not university level. They're already professional in the business. And, and lately I started, during COVID, I started a great program called Indaba, which is, is, is from South Africa and is training African producer. And, and, and then lately for the past, also during COVID, I started a Canadian program. So there and a main program called Access for BIPOC producer, Black Indigenous people of color. And, and this is like a new revelation for me of being less Eurocentric and being non-American and just um, see how on those either the BIPOC producer in Canada or the African producer, we can build with them. They are the new generation, new business models that they don't depend either on what a lot of them call the the colony money or like the guilt money from the European countries towards, you know, African and Canadian films. And on the other hand, how the Canadian producer who are from the Black, Indigenous and people of color communities can get their voices heard when it's so complex to live anyway as those communities. And so where are they getting their financing from then, if not from the old colonial funding mechanisms? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a big fighter to help them raise within themselves and within their own community a political awareness that will allow that policy changes and that allows the country to recognize what I was saying earlier, what we were talking earlier regarding Europe and how much does it, how much work does it bring, how much recognition does it bring, the, the side effects of the industry and to really see themselves as part of an industry and not just one film at a time, see themselves as, as entrepreneurs. And so there are a lot of other ways. There is a lot of charities, of course, and foundation, sorry, the charity term, strike it, foundation. In Africa, I mean, for sure, in Africa, a lot of uh, foundation are around to actually. Are those foundations not effectively colonial? Not especially, but then again, there's a very big industry happening. One of the things we need to recognize of this Eurocentric, sometimes people forget, is that the African average population and Indian, for example, also, but also the South American one at least Africa and India is 70% of the population is below 30 years old. So it's huge market. It's a huge market. And still for independent films, they're looking at co-production with Europe. So yes, do take the money, but also try build another system because you are sitting on the biggest growing market in the world. And it's not, and it's culture. It's not uranium. And it's not cobalt. 
Yeah, you don't and have to so, chop down a forest or dig it out of the ground or exactly it, children to go into a hole in the ground to make it. Yeah. And those, so th this is really essential for me to, with the knowledge I have, with all the mistakes and the failures I've had, because we're speaking about, you know, I won't take about all those, but those are learning curves, of course, is fail, fail again, fail better. Right. Well, the first film you tried to make didn't get made. Yeah. With all my, all my experience and my easier connection, I'm just telling them that the only difference between them and me is I get a no faster on the film. You know, at my age and the experience, the no, a fast no is like a, a savior of the day because then, you know, you're not like, uh, like I did with my first book that I've never made uh, being a, a nail, you know, a nail that doesn't enter the wall. I know how the wall is made now. And so it's just much easier. And when the no, final no comes, I also recognize it. I'm not, you know, suicidal to that part, but in terms of that. So this this part of the, the this, this thing that I'm doing on training is essential for my health, I think, mental health. It's also essential for to just keep the keep keep the understanding what the new generation, how do they look at what we do? Where do you know how do they express those stories? How do they try to bend to the conventional or to the data today and tell them there's another way. Or at least I'm not telling them there's another way. I make them, I'm, I just open a little bit, another door to make the thing that, and, and have experience with them another way. Because of the problem, as you know, is the uh, data we are all, you know, now the product of. And, and it's really easily you can fall into the trap of saying, oh, well, you know, we've been told by this streamer and this streamer that we need to go on murder mysteries. But yeah, maybe, but, you know, maybe not. Maybe another voice will do another circuit. So it's, it's, it's the pressure on the younger producers and not only producers because of the sales agent and distribution and, and the whole spectrum of uh, the profession within the film industry is extremely, extremely complex to navigate today. It's really complex because you get information. It was not an information data. It's just in the eye of someone and you actually don't know because it's not shared. So you, you could be told that's what the audience wants. No, I kind of disagree with that. And, but you know, I'm a free spirit. So what are you working on now? So I'm working, uh, can I mention it? Sure. I'm working on your film, on your book. And we know how long that's been. <laughs> so when we say five years, we actually can celebrate the 10 year. So right. yeah, I'm trying to adapt Rapper's book, The Horseboy, which I fell in love with because I was horseback riding then and totally fell in love with. And it's been a long journey and I'm not giving up on this one. This is one even with, because we never get a no, we just get bad luck. <laughs> so we're working actually actively on that. Hoping to hoping to make it one day. I'm not going to give a date, but this is yeah. if there is lasting to do, I will do that one. Uh, I'm working. I just finished a shoot of a young adult film. It's the first one I do. It's not even young adult. It's a teen film about bullying, mm -hmm. and it's fantastic. It's it's a fantastic story about how ghosts 
who's the girl who's just committed suicide. We look at how she, how she ended up there, and we're tackling the notion of, we're tackling the notion of this anonymous bullying that goes on with the social network. It's mm. a very beautiful, very strong. It's based. Uh, What's the name of the film? It's called. Okay, we that's a working title. Is TKT, which in French is the short for t'inquiète, and t'inquiète is don't worry. So yeah. when you have teenagers start to tell you, don't worry, you actually have to start to really worry mm -hmm. because uh, the disconnect between parents and teenagers is mm -hmm. so immense. They will never let you in their world and their no. world is really brutal and violent. Mm. And uh, so we wanted to tackle that because it's an epidemic. And, and is that based on a, on a book or is that just... So it's based on a book that's very, you know, it's based it's based on the research of a teacher she wrote a book but it's loosely based on that and it's mainly based on i think more than 300 interviews we had with teenagers mm. and their reality uh and it stems from the fact that the director who's director i've done now it's the third film we do together you know had uh, she's well off and she's quite bourgeois environment with really good a kind of a great students pretty healthy white whatever all the cliche of the bourgeoisie her daughter was being bullied and she almost realized it too late mm -hmm. and so you know the we convey the idea of bullying is only the others we convey the idea of bullying is like the fatter or the one that has glasses or the whatever. It's everywhere. It's in every school. It's in every walk of life. And and so she decided, though she, we, we've done only comedies, the two previous films, we decided to do this one. It's been a hard sell. I have to say, very hard sell on the market. Nobody wants to touch it. But we've decided we managed to get enough money to be able to do it. Not exactly the way we wanted, but enough to do a good film. When and, do you think it'll be out? Well, we just finished shooting last week. So, you know, it was supposed to... We're going to finish it around May or June next year. And it's French language? Yeah, okay. it's French language. I have to find an English title. So if your listeners have an idea, welcome. Don't because worry, mum. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm doing that. We're starting to shoot a TV show, Ha Ha Ha, Murder Mystery TV show in two weeks. Uh, so that's a big project because it's actually my first TV show. It's it's set in the 90s, so it's complex. Of course, there's not enough money because we're also facing the hike of the increase, the increase sorry, of the uh, cost of living. But the budget are from two years ago, so they don't really care about that. And and so we have to deal with that. And it's it's a cross of for those who saw it, Little Fire Everywhere meets Mayor of Easttown. Okay. Uh, it's it's woman based, it's woman center, it's a woman director, woman DOP. It's based on the on true it stems from true events that happened in Belgium in the 90s, which at the same time saw the end of the industrial era of the steel industry, and then the serial killer and child molester and horror person. And there was a war of police here, so I'm not going to get into it. It's quite complex, but it's extremely fascinating around the classes, the working class, the bourgeois, ruling families, about the Italian immigration. And that's another yet subject about, you know, the makeup of Belgium. 
and war of police that then doesn't get any results and awful serial killers are, are being let loose because just ego, police ego. Anyway, so we're shooting that one till the end of the year. That's going to be for a delivery also in June. And then I have a few other projects in the in development right now. My first Jean film, who's a survival film, um, which also woman, kind of a woman story around motherhood, but it's totally genre. It's misery meets into the wild. So that's another one that I'm financing right now, and we are casting and we are wrecking. So it's set in the mountains. So we've been to beautiful places. Like that's the other front part of my job. We've been wrecking in Alto Adige in so northern Italy to Slovenia. It's really fun. And yeah, and, and quite a few others that are baby level. So just a few ideas, another TV series, and then another book that I've just optioned and from a Belgian writer. And uh, yeah, and then a lot of things coming from, I have project from Canada, we have project from Italy, we have project from Germany coming. So there's a lot on the slate, but they're all different stages of development or just writing. Just quickly, how does a book option work? People talk about optioning. This is one of these, these, these terms you hear as a layman, if you're listening, how does a, what does, what does a book option mean in the film world? So the way it works with editor, book editors in the film world is that pre-publishing pre of a book, the editors, all of them have what they call the audiovisual department. So when you get to know to be known in the realm of uh, book publishing or management, uh, you do get a preview of the upcoming books. So of course, the... Uh, a lot of them are snatched up by the American studios and you never get access to them. But I'm working mainly with European publishers or non-American because I can't even get to Penguin Random and the rest of them. I mean, it's just like, it's like so many readers in the studios. There's no way you can get to a book fast on that level and also on the money level. So what happens is that if a book is of interest, then I make an offer and because we never know how difficult or not difficult a book is, and I can give you a few examples, you take an option to produce a film based on the book for a year, two years, three years, five years, and it has a price. And the option and means that you, your production company, has the right to go out and try to raise the funds to get the film made. And if, if the publisher... And the author say okay, and they sign that option with you. They can't go out to another exactly uh, film producer over there and say, "Oh well, wait, let's pay you off against each other or so." Yeah, they can't, and and they can't go to another language. Okay, because if I, I read a book in French, if it's translated after and so on the American market, and somebody wants it, I have a holdback period. They cannot. Okay. No film can be, if the film is made at the end of the day, no film can be made after two, three, four years of the, the release of the first film. Okay. So there's a whole back period for further release in different languages. So it's quite complex. The book, the, the it's very highly competitive market because everybody's looking at 
what you mentioned earlier on intellectual property is really the worth also of a production company. I option in my life, not only your book, but also amazing uh, content like Anne Frank diary diaries, or I also option you optioned the, di the diaries of Anne Frank. Yeah. But how did you do that? Because those, have those not been made and taken up by American companies? No, it was actually in Israel. It was actually European. That was, Yeah, that was European. So you also have to understand that all mm. the publishers or the audiovisual rights representative of the publisher are in the, every single market. Those people are really accessible. So, you know, you go, you you usually receive pre-market, you receive like a whole, oh, those books are coming out. And then you also receive all those books that have not been optioned. And it goes from, you know, real life, you know, like your book, like a biography or real life event, it goes to children literature, you know, to, and then all the rest of the genre we know. And it's extremely, you know, if you see like The Lost Daughter, for example, it was a huge, huge IP because the author was huge and it was uh, there was a lot of uh, pressure on that one. So the fact that the, um, the, the producer managed to get that as independent producer in another studio. So there's a lot of pressure when books come out or they are, you know, are announced. I also go back to old, I have a lot of friends that are, I don't know, how do you say that in English? I have a lot of friends that are librarians. So I also have dinner with them like once every two, twice a year and say, I want only literature from, you know, American literature for the seventies has not been optioned. So, you know, then the rights and the price is really low because if it hasn't been optioned, probably it has returned back. I mean, that they have no value, almost less value, a very, you know, books that are coming out are super sellers are unbuyable because it's so much money to to option and they won't give it unless you have the whole package already figured out so it's mainly goes to the american and the studios or big french companies so the, so the another example of a book who was extremely hard to get and we managed to get and we did a film film about it was a comic book it was uh, Taniguchi, um, Cartier Lointain. Again, I have to remember the English title. So Taniguchi is the father of the manga. He passed, unfortunately. Father of manga, okay. Yeah, he's the father of the manga. The, he's like above and beyond every manga writers. Give us his name again. Taniguchi. Taniguchi. Yeah, a beautiful writer, beautiful stories. And Here I go down my wiki rabbit hole as you speak. Keep going. And uh, so that was a lot of pressure because the book was very successful in France. Mm. And not only in France, around the world, but also the name as a, a writer was massive. And we really had to get our act together to be able to get the, the... The only chance I had on that one was the fact that the publisher was in non-Japanese. So the, the official publisher outside of Japan was the Belgian publishing company. And I knew very well the director of the audiovisual rights. And I went to eat with her and I said, we ha I have to do this book. I have to do this. And so she gave it to me. Well, not only because I'm nice and beautiful and friendly and I know good restaurants, but I mean, it was a, not an easy transaction, but we got it. And yeah, so 
there is a lot of pressure on that, but it's obvious, you know, if it, and, and funnily enough, it's not because a good is a, a book is good. The film is going to be good. Mm, absolutely. Usually what there is this one spark in a book that you say, yeah, we need to do this, but it's not always a book. It's just a one spark, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. especially with adaptation of comic book. Absolutely. Which which is the comic book that you you're, you've adapted by Taniguchi? Tani- uh, it's Quartier Lointain, French. And again, for the life of me, I will not remember. Um, Cartier. His bibliography here. Well, Cartier obviously means like a quarter of a of a town, right? Uh, faraway neighborhood. Faraway neighborhood. Okay, gosh. In Japanese, it's Aruka Namashi. Do you happen to know when it came out? Because he's, he's. I think it's in. Okay, the story is set in 1998. And let me go. I'll also go to Wiki. Because. Huh? Hold on. It was published in 1998 in Japan. Published. And then was translated in 2002. And three came back out in France. I, I see it here. A distant neighborhood. A distant neighborhood, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Haruka, Nama, Haruka Namachi. A Distant Neighbourhood, yeah. translated in English as a distant We had a huge pleasure, immense pleasure of Mr. Taniguchi coming to the set. We were shooting in the Alps, uh-huh. the border of Switzerland, and he came to the set and that was just amazing with his wife and it was just beautiful, beautiful. Plot, beautiful. middle-aged salaryman Hiroshi Nakahara accidentally takes a train ride back to his old hometown to visit his mother's grave. Then for reasons he cannot explain, Hiroshi is transported over 30 years into the past, reacquainting himself with the family he's lost and the individual memories he has since forgotten. Good, sounds good esoteric Japanese stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's everybody's wild dream to sometime revisit unfinished story, unfinished yeah. business. Absolutely, right, right the wrongs and heal must be a story of healing so uh, there's a couple of moral takeaways i'm taking from this as we as we head towards the end of this really fascinating conversation one is always talk to strangers always you wouldn't you know why Rupert? you know why always talk to strangers absolutely absolutely because we're always told not to and it's really interesting. I wasn't going that way, but okay. <laughs> I leave it to. But we are we are told not to. We are told to be reserved. We we are told not to put ourselves forward. We're told not to be mouthy. We're told not to be curious. And you're you you're saying with this high school teacher, the conversations with that person. Then you know a bar in in Israel, at a certain period of your life, and then this conversation with the this amazing young man who's somehow managing to bring grace into the stressful situation in a taxi rank who then turns out to be with you a very successful young director yeah yeah so talk to strangers there's something else which I wanted to ask you really from the beginning of this you had a high school teacher who turned you on to Dutch literature. And this is where these stories began. Have you made one of these stories? And also, what is the Dutch literature book that we should all read that we don't know? Oh, my God. This is like down memory lane. So, no, I've never made any anything. I, I still want to make one, but I'm, I'm not going to be able because the family is holding tight on the rights. But 
So, what, what's I the think, book that you feel so, we should read? Yeah, so the, the book, and I can't even remember the book. That's just to tell you that much. I know it triggers something in me. I think it's called The Wall. I can't even figure out. The, I, I don't remember the name of the writer, but, you know, and, but then many, many, many books later, when I made this connection with Faulkner, because literally she told me, if you like him, you're going to love Faulkner. Mm-hmm. And that's how I started. And then I went Faulkner and I read all Faulkner in French because Shakespeare and Faulkner are the two writers I cannot read in English. Okay, so interesting. I don't get it. I don't get it. And that sounds so kind of, oh, I can't read Faulkner and Shakespeare in English. But no, anyway. It makes sense. It makes sense because you're dealing with a very particular kind of English. And I think yeah. I think that those two, I think that all the classic writers it truly actually doesn't matter what language you read them in because the power of the story is so is so powerful that it transcends the language um yeah. and i think i think any author and i know i would say that you know if 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 you can translate my book really well into your language please have at it because there'll be aspects of it that i couldn't do in my own language that come out of that story that you might do better in translation yeah Stories, stories have are their own ecosystems for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. And language have like, <laughs> language are beautiful, and yeah. So yeah, and then Faulkner, and then I love Faulkner. I came back and I say, oh, you know, I love Faulkner. And she was really in her own way of being a Flemish teacher. Everybody hated Flemish, by the way, at school, <laughs> but in her own way, she kind of like guided me. And she said, oh, maybe you should leave. You should read Cortez. Oh, no, sorry. Marquez then came, of course, the hundred years of solitude, where then my world completely kind of like, you know, what is that? And and then after that came all the others, Fuentes and Borges and Cortazar and like the very classical South American, right? Um, and I just couldn't get enough of it. And it's funny because at that time also, I never read one female writer, right? And still, I could totally engage in those crazy, crazy time lapses that magic realism brings you of, of and kind of a little bit of schizophrenia because especially Fuentes, but also Cortazar with the division of the self with the point of view of the he and the point of view of the I is, is, was mesmerizing for me to be able to look at the Anyway, it was mesmerizing and never, and you know, I was trained in traditional French schools. So we had, you know, we had Victor Hugo and we have, we had like Giono and we had all the French classic, but it was also at the time we were reading a lot. And, and just this encounter with the American writers and the South American, um, I, I've, I've seen her many, many years later and and then we went to eat and I, I had to thank her. I mean, really, I had to thank her and say, you know, you changed my world. You actually changed my world. And I wish we would recognize more the capacity of what teacher can do to a young child, a teenage, and how important that is. But she literally, she didn't change my world because I didn't know I had a church, a world to change. But she opened a door that I didn't know existed. Absolutely. I had a teacher like this at school who had been a the student of, of Tolkien's. Oh, God. And he read a couple of things that I had written um, and said, Rupert, you can do this. You should you should do this. Level. I, I've just I've just been looking up now Dutch 
literature because now I'm like, oh my gosh, well, clearly there's a whole world here. And of course, who pops up but Anne Frank? And it's yeah. true. We don't think of her as a Dutch writer, you know. We think of Except her. Except for the Dutch, we think of her. about her as a Dutch writer. Um, yeah. But there are some really interesting people coming up here, like Gerard Reeve, and oh, yeah. uh, writing yeah. about homosexuality and the when it was still illegal. Willem Frederick Hermans talking about the war. So thank you for turning. I've got a whole. I've got. I've got. I'm going to dive down a Dutch rabbit hole. I mean, it's kind of funny that we, you know, you're speaking to a film producer, you're going to end up reading 20, 20 times more books than going and actually seeing films. I'm not sure I'm doing my job right. <laughs> well, the other thing that you're doing, which is the, the other moral of this, which I, I want I want listeners to take away, is obviously I'm a predominantly English-speaking person. So although I've stuff I've written has gone into translation, I write in English and I live in Germany. My German is poor, but it's functional. I can speak French, but I don't write in it. And I, I wouldn't presume to be able to. For those of us listening to this, because I will go back and listen to this as well. We tend to assume in the movie industry, in the industry of stories, TV, etc., that it's all English speaking. So I know that a lot of you will have, a lot of you listeners will have tuned into this episode thinking ah well this must be about Hollywood and this must be about um the offshoots of that which of course are the streaming services and that sort of thing what I think is really fascinating is people outside of the English-speaking world discount because they're just not exposed to it until it gets remade in English because a lot of a lot of great films in English were actually made in other languages first we people forget that a lot of the classic movies that we know and love were often French movies or German movies or Italian movies before they were English movies but that there's this whole industry and that you can even take a country as small as Belgium which you know when you look at from the American americocentric point of view people are like oh Belgium is just a tiny little country what does that mean but of course where do we get Tintin? Where do we get Asterix? Where do we get you know, the, 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 the cultural output? And that when you do now sit on the aeroplane and you see all these films from all over the world, as you said, Diana, there's an industry there. So I think a real takeaway is that don't think if you want to go into the movie industry, if you want to publish a book, if you want to make a film, that it has to be Hollywood, that there has to be this break through those gatekeepers into that world no no you, you can make it where you are and yes. there is a whole industry that will sustain you okay it's it's connected to an international industry but it will sustain you where you are so if you're sitting in you might be sitting in the usa or you're sitting in, in the uk but you might be sitting listening to this in benin or mongolia yeah I'm on Goya, actually. get a huge, huge... Absolutely. You, oh, you, God. You make your film and your TV stuff there. And you should. You don't have to think Hollywood. And I, I think this is really important for people because I think a lot of people don't start because they think, oh, well, I, I could never make it there. I don't have the race. I don't have the connections. How would I make it in film? Because film equals Los Angeles or it equals, yeah? Yeah. It's... But it doesn't. Yeah, it's it's a lot of overlook, and it's good that you're uh, mentioning that we're making films. Or I mean, we when I say the film community is making films everywhere, and actually the market is 
Of course, the market is craving for the American films because it's entertainment. It's it's got a production value only in America you can make. But you know, Nigeria makes as many films as the US or India makes as any film in the US to so just name a few. Mm. The thing is that also one of the things that we should be craving for in the market is actually the market of the independent film world is craving for is all those new voices. As soon as a look at last year, look at the foreign Oscars, for example, or, or international, no, I think it's called they rename it, international Oscar list. Last year, there was a film of Bhutan. And then you have a film from, you know, Joy, Joyful from Iraq who was there. You know, look at those films. They get there for a reason because it's another way to look at our world. And if you like to, tr I mean, it sounds tacky to the max, but I'm going to go for it. If you, if you are a little bit curious about how your neighbor lives, go see films from your own country as well, depending where you are. And it could be the American indie films also, which is a totally different industry than the Hollywood, because there's also that whole other industry. We did a film last year, one, we, we, we had a film in Canada, one, The Camera Door, which is the best first film of all the, all the films shown in Cannes called War Pony about the Dakota First Nation. You know, it's, and it's an American film. War Pony. War Pony. You produced that? It's it's the, my comp I mean it's a group I'm part of a group called Caviar so it's Caviar group, and it's a first film, First Nation Dakota. I had no idea what it was, and I saw the film because I wasn't involved in the production of that one, but you know I saw the film in Cannes and I was you know my heart went out and I was like damn so much work to do in the world it's beautiful, and yeah. Thank you for turning me on. I'm, I'm just wicking War Pony right now. Looks absolutely fascinating. Because, yeah, I know a little bit about the Lakota um, situation and the uh, Rosebud and Pine Ridge res reservations in in America, which, of course, are the, the two poorest parts of America. But yet they so have... I think, I, think the, I think film, it's actually a reduction of... Uh, uh, literature, yes, it takes an effort. Yes, it demands an effort. Yes, you might not want to go and see it because it's raining, because it's a little bit too expensive for my taste as well. But you would be amazed the conversation you can engage and you would be amazed about how it makes you, I know, I'm going to go all the way, how it could make you challenge. Mm. your everyday life and how beautiful it can be. I've seen film this year in Cannes. I've seen one It's uh, this year in the, the last Cannes in May, who's called Zone of Interest by Jonathan Glazer, which is a UK director. He's done only three films. And I can tell you that I came out of the film so shaken, so destroyed emotionally, and so it was a weird can because at the same time I had also a film screening at Cannes, but I was crying the whole <laughs> the whole can, not because I couldn't make it, but because of the because of the emotion I felt. And each time everybody of my friends said, oh, Did you see the Jonathan Glazer? It was a buzz on the croisette, and I was like starting to cry. And I just came back from Locarno, it was another film festival in Europe, just yesterday. And I, when I landed, the producer of that film was um, landing at the same time from Poland. And so we shared the drive from Zurich to Locarno was, uh, 
around four and a half hours. And uh, I told, I mean, I was crying again. And so she, I was asking questions about the film, how they made it, you know, how does it work? And of course the film has been sold everywhere. So it's gonna come out probably in the full time in most of the places and probably will have a nomination for an international Oscar. But, and how much I cried again in that car drive. I was just like, look at what you're doing to me. Look at how I can't get away from the emotion I felt. And months after seeing the film, and I'm not especially nor romantic, nor kind of emotional person, but that one just triggered. And if you can have that once in a while in your life and be able for two hours to forget about the fact that you have to go home and, you know, you have to pay bills and, you know, that sometimes life is crap or just beautiful and just have this bubble of time and find, and sometimes it's going to be awful film and you're going to hate it. But the one you find the great film, it's just such an experience. Tell us the name of this film by Jonathan Glazer. It's called Zone of Interest. It's based on a book. The author died the day of the screening. Wow. I can't remember the author's name, of course, like the rest of the authors, but you're going to find it on the internet. Okay. Thank you for the tip. War Pony yeah. and Zone of Interest. I just see that War, War Pony was uh, produced by Riley Cuff. Who, yeah, no, she was, it was directed by her. Who, of course, is uh, Elvis Presley's granddaughter. Yeah, it was directed uh, by her. Um, it was directed by her, and there were two uh, directors who met in another beautiful film shot by Andrea Arnold called American Honey. Those two actresses met, and then they shot there in South Dakota for American Honey, and that's how they got in touch with the Lakotas. So it's, you know, one film brings another film. Gosh, zone of interest. A Nazi officer falls in love with the woman of the commander of the Auschwitz concentration camp. That's 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 worse, worst pitch ever. It's really not about that. Based on the Martin Amos. Yeah, Martin Amos. Okay. It's really not the pitch of the film. Yeah, well, you know, they always they always have to. Uh... But it's not. It's it's much more. It's it's a radical film. It's also okay. I'm gonna get into it just a little bit, Rupert, uh-huh. and then you. It's also the fact that it's not the story is told by what's on the screen. Okay, I'm gonna start again. Take two. The story is told. The way we tell a story is not always telling a story from. It's always. It's also the combination of the visual grammar of a film and and the bounce back the echo between the narration and the visual grammar makes a film amazing could also make a film really bad sometimes it's overdone that one is just a perfect equilibrium extremely hard but and radical i have to say so but go and see it because there is yeah. There the is commandant of the Auschwitz concentration camp, Rudolf Huss, and his wife Hedwig strive to build a dream life for their family in a house and garden next to the camp of Auschwitz. It's, even, it's the wall yeah. of the camp, is the wall of the garden. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. It, and it's amazing actors. And the ways, I mean, also read about the film, don't read too much about it, don't see too much online about it, but go and see it. But the way he shot it was also very radical. 
And and the more you get into those details, the more it's not about appreciation. Oh, sorry for my English, but it's not about the appreciation of the, the craft. It's not how complex it was. It's not how expensive it was. It's the fact that the result has an emotional, emotional brings you into an emotional journey. Absolutely. The power of story, the power of stories, the power yeah. of change. Yeah. We are the storytelling ape. We're not, you know, they call us sapiens sapiens. Yeah. yeah. I had this thing about saying that, but really all anything with a brain thinks there's nothing special to our species about thinking. But we have this larynx and we tell stories, other animals vocalize and they can do that in a very complex way, but they don't make films, write poetry, create literature. That's us. That's our species. Yeah. And it seems to be connected to healing at its very core that, you know, the 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 shamanistic experiences you 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 want to hunt you you must contact the the spirits of the animals you want healing you must contact the spirits of the ancestors through a shaman bring your story why why you need healing the shaman goes into an older state of consciousness makes contact with the gets a story from the spirit world brings it back tells you that story and then you and the shaman go on to create a new story that's the heal but it, even that's going to the doctor isn't it you get you go to the doctor saying oh you know my leg and the doctor consults their literature which is a story and tells you another story and then yeah. you and that doctor create a new story of your leg hopefully getting better but i th i think that that yeah really that's at the core of this that story is healing story is change as you said it, it creates policy change it creates ripple effects down the decades further yeah uh, and you know when you're speaking about healing my when i feel really low my favorite film and it's not european it's not art house it's not anything to make make me feel up again is like kung fu panda for example you know i just love it <laughs> and it's like don't explain and it doesn't matter and everybody has its solace uh, place you know and just I feel so good and I was like yeah life is good I have a tendency of liking the underdogs anyway but uh, um, it's just one of those yeah it's a place of refuge and the storytelling it's a place of feeling yeah it's exactly what you were saying it's also a place of community and that's why the community and also, you know what? I'm just going to give another example of me going to a lot of festivals. So no, I was in Locarno and I was, you know, in Brussels at a festival and everything. Those are the places where you see the most amazing film. And it, it actually is the lowest way, it's a low cost way to see film, not because the film is not good, but because you get a package deal and you can see 25 films and they are happening everywhere in the world and every city almost. There's at one point and another a film festival, documentary film festival, short film festival and automatic film festival. Do it. You would be so amazed if you take like, I mean, not a week off, of course, because, but if you're like for a week, you go and see a film every day or every morning or it's, it, it's just amazing experience, really. That's really interesting. And thank you for that. That that's the other take. I've only I've shamefully, I've only ever been to film festivals and I've been trying to sell a movie of my own. Um it's never occurred to me, much as I love movie and story, um, I guess because I'm often so busy making stories, that yes, you're absolutely right to to go and die, use film festival like, like like going to a music festival to yeah. suddenly go and expose yourself to a whole smorgasbord of storytelling 
and to dive into that for a week of your life. Yeah. A year. And just be surprised and what, what no judgment and no reading. Just go yeah. in. That's yeah. the best way to go and see a film, not knowing anything about the film. So that's, the, works, that's so the last yeah. moral of the of, of the interviews is go to film fest, go to your go to your city's film festival. Absolutely. And for the younger audience, if you have a young audience listening, go and volunteer. It's even more fun. Ah, yes. Yeah, because they're always looking for volunteers. And anybody actually, I go back to the advice of if you want to get into the film business, one of the ways to start, a lot of people that I know starting film business start to volunteer in their local film festival because they always want Beneval. So you, of course, that don't, don't make any money, but you make a lot of friends and usually you end up drinking a lot of the parties and whatever. But the thing is that you get to know people. You get to see directors, you get to see the guests that are coming. Every festival has usually guests or, you know, the films are coming with a crew or an actor and etc. And that's how you start if you, you know, have no other way. And or if you're really interested, you start like that. And it's amazing how it's a welcoming community. And also because there is another thing that I have to tell you, which is a little more practical, is the fact that I've hired a lot of people in my life. I've never asked never ever ask what kind of diploma they had and it's still happening it's a little more complex today but the experience outweighs the diploma so it's not saying that you don't need to study yes you do need to study maybe not cinema maybe you're in legal or your business and you love cinema you know I, it, it's just an amazing environment in which to work because it's just, it's just a great environment. I can't uh, put more words. You find, like everywhere, also crap people, but mainly over my years, amazing, amazing people. Well, you, you heard it from Diana, people. If you're looking, you young people, if you're looking, and middle-aged, if you're looking to get into the film biz, go volunteer at your local film festival. What perfect advice. Join the community. Diana, and, how do yeah. people contact you? Is is there where how do they find you? Let's name of your company, website. Can people write questions to you? How do they do that? Oh my God, Vapor, that's like the hardest thing. If you if you type in my name, you're gonna pretty much find about everything about me and 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 my information. Um if you want to write me, I will not take scripts, unfortunately. You have to be very, very concise about an idea you might have. It might take a lot of time for me to answer. And yeah, I mean, my I have that many as many hours as everybody else in a day. Well, here's so, my, here's what I would suggest for people. If you've got a, if you've got a question for Diana, because I know because I work with Diana a bit and it can sometimes take her quite a long time to uh, uh, reply <laughs> to an email. And I am guilty as charged the same thing because we're all busy. But write to me with a question for Diana and I will put it to her. And what I might do is I'm, I think I will collect those questions like I'm doing for everybody. And Diana, would you consent to come back on and sure. answer those questions in a, in a second, second with pleasure with you and with your listener with pleasure. And probably we can open other doors. Yeah. With great pleasure. Wonderful. Thank All you. right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I look forward to that that follow-up there's a bunch more questions i want to ask so till next time absolutely i'll be here
And thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. I'm, I'm extremely grateful. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, till next time. Bye-bye. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join our website, newtrailslearning.com, to check out our online courses and live workshops in Horseboy Method, Movement Method, and Athena. These evidence-based programs have helped children, veterans, and people dealing with trauma around the world. We also offer a horse training program and self-care program for riders on longridehome.com. These include easy-to-do online courses and tutorials that bring you and your horse joy. For an overview of all shows and programs, go to rupertisaacson.com. See you on the next show. And please remember to press subscribe and share.